Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ICS Pulse podcast, special edition, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So we're doing a series of podcasts, bringing back some of your favorite guests from our first year. And yes, we have now been podcasting for a year. Uh, if you're familiar with the Proust Questionnaire and Vanity Fair, and honestly haven't already been listening to this podcast, it's a little like that. We're going to ask five quick questions, although ours will be on cybersecurity to each guest. We'll be dropping two or three of these every week, so please watch out for new episodes. I mean, I'm sure you're already watching out for new episodes, but if you're not, watch out for new episodes. All right, let's jump into this thing. I am host number one, Gary Cohen, joined as always by, I don't want to call him host number two, host number one plus Tyler Wall. Today, very happy to be bringing back Victor Atkins of 1898 & Co. Victor is the Global Director and of Executive Advisory Services for Industrial Cybersecurity at 1898. He's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and spent eight years working in the government with the U.S. Department of Energy in intelligence and cyber intelligence with the National Security Council. Victor, we didn't scare you off the first time. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. I really had a great time last time. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking to you again. You ready to jump right in? Uh, go for it. All right. So Cybersecurity Awareness Month always highlights some key behaviors, updating software, multi-factor authentication, password, recognizing phishing. What do you think people should be focusing on this month? Yeah, this is a great question. I think start simple. Uh, at the very least, people should patch known vulnerabilities. Uh, security professionals are always worried about zero days and uh, which are basically malware variants that are specifically tailored to attack a system vulnerability that's never been seen in the wild before. But, you know, in 2022, the National Security Agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which we call CISA, and the FBI all released advisories uh, about the top common vulnerabilities and exposures actively exploited by China cyber actors since 2020. And I don't recall the number exactly. But when I was at the Department of Energy track, tracking cyber intrusions in the energy sector, there was a high percentage of successful cyber in incidents that exploited these known vulnerabilities. So just think of the headaches that could have been avoided if everybody would have addressed the vulnerabilities in their systems with patches that already existed and that were already widely available. But this is still a problem today. And if people really wanted to get a gold star for effort, I would say that uh, organizations, particularly those that have uh, critical infrastructure that have to manage IT and OT networks, information technology and operational technology networks, that they should make every effort to know what's even in their environment and how those networks are configured. So many organizations don't have any accurate inventory of hardware and software within their environment, nor do they have a detailed network maps of how their technology is even configured or connected. So uh, I take the gloomy position that uh, for most critical infrastructure that we rely on every day, whether that's in communications, transportation, water, energy, et cetera, that we should assume our enemies already have these uh, systems compromised. So if you think that's true, uh, many cases, it might be the case that cyber actors with malicious intent may already know more about these networks than the owners themselves. Uh, so if, if folks made the investment in resources and uh and time to accurately map and inventory their environment, and this is not actually a very expensive thing to do, then they could know what they have, they could address the vulnerabilities in those networks with what they own. And then if they did that, they could eliminate the cyber footholds that many of these adversaries already have established a long way towards keeping them out in the future, or at least it would make it more difficult for them the next time. 
So it is October. We are coming up on the end of the year here and about to enter 2024, which feels absolutely wild, honestly. 2023 feels like it just started last week. But as we're starting to head into 2024, uh, what trends or developments in cybersecurity are you particularly excited about? So I think I'm excited mostly by the trend of the increased collaboration between different disciplines that take cybersecurity and cyber risk into account when operating cyber physical systems. So what does that mean? There's a lot of cyber thrown in there. For some time, people in critical infrastructure industries have been talking about what they call IT-OT integration, which basically just means that people responsible for operating and securing business and, and IT networks are also doing more work with control system engineers and operators of OT systems to secure these networks as a whole. This is great. I mean, typically they've been separated in an organization. Now they're working more together and we should see more of this. Uh, especially as we increase more automation and more data-driven analytics that rely on connectivity into these OT networks. The more these people talk and share responsibility for making these systems more secure, the better we're all going to be. But what really seems new, I think, in addition to that, is the rising demand for design engineers and system planners and cybersecurity professionals to collaborate on planning and designing new critical infrastructure projects so that they incorporate cyber risk along with all the other risk factors that they usually consider when they design a system. So in other words, cyber perspectives are being driven into the early design and front end planning phases of new projects instead of the typical approach that we've always seen where they bolt on cybersecurity technologies after everything's built and, and, and stood up, which is way more expensive and less effective in the long run. So, for example, in May of this year, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which we also call NERC, which is uh, responsible for us, uh, assuring the reliable and resilient bulk power electric system for North America, uh, they released a paper called Cyber Informed Transmission Planning Framework, which is a elaborate document that challenges the electricity sector to bring cybersecurity into the earlier transmission planning efforts for the future. Okay, so... That, why does that matter? As we start to bring more renewables and more renewable generation sources into the grid, they have a lot of digital components and exposure to cyber attacks. So this call for collaboration for cyber on the front end planning phase uh, could not happen at a better time for our nation. And I'm, I'm really excited for the prospects there. And, uh, and recently I'll add that I participated in a cyber informed engineering practitioners workshop, which was hosted by the McCrary Institute at Auburn University. Uh, in collaboration with Idaho National Laboratory, where we discussed with a couple hundred people how to, how to get these types of collaborations moving, where cybersecurity people and engineering professionals can work together, create more cyber resilient infrastructure projects. Uh, this is going to be difficult because uh, cyber core perspectives and front end planning efforts requires the evolution of existing engineering standards of care and other design practices that in some cases have been around for over 100 years. Um, and we all know that engineers are not the first to early adopters of new ideas and technologies. But we all know that cyber is here to stay, especially in control of industrial processes, which I think your audience obviously appreciates. So engineering design practitioners have to take cyber risk into account, especially as cyber can make those systems fail. So if we can do that, we'll make a huge difference in reducing risk uh, on public health and safety and even our national security. And I'm really excited to help drive those efforts forward into the future. Great answer. Great. That's a great answer. I mean, the, the idea of collaboration, too, between these groups is the fact that that's happening more is really heartening. So good to hear that. Uh, not asking you to name names or throw anybody on the under the bus, but 
Can you share a memorable experience or a case from your career that for you really highlighted the importance of cybersecurity? <laughs> well, and you, as you highlighted in my intro, I've spent most of my career in the government and the intelligence community, uh, which meant most of it was in classified environments. And I can already feel your audience's eye roll, eyes roll when I say that, unfortunately, I can't share any details about those incidents that I observed or had to help resolve when I was in that capacity. But even so, um, I can, I can say that when we talk about cybersecurity, we often talk about initiatives in terms of people, process, and technology. And there's a lot of work and attention on establishing new processes and on being compliant with existing standards and policies. There's a lot of investment in creating and installing whiz-bang technology and new solutions that everybody claims can provide elegant security controls for whatever threats they own. And that's all good and everybody should keep doing this. But in just about every one of those really stressful cybersecurity incident situations in my career, uh, the root cause on the final analysis was on the people side, which sounds very personal and human, but human behavior, very personal actually, but human behaviors and tendencies are often a source of all of our problems, not just in cybersecurity. Uh, so you can have a great technical security control program in place, but that doesn't mean anything if people in key roles bypass those controls for their own convenience. And policies that may be perfect uh, are meaningless if they're not implemented, maintained, or enforced by doing, uh, because of doing that is too complicated or costly, or because like we talked about earlier, uh, an entrenched operational culture doesn't want to see security changes. Um, we So when, uh, in my experience, we can have run-of-the-mill carelessness where people uh, with the best of uh, intentions, make stupid mistakes or do dumb things. Like um, we can harp on the obvious cases of poor password management or opening that phishing email. Uh, but I've also seen a lot of cases where control systems that are poorly configured or engineers bypass the security and controls in place because they want to make it easier to do their job, like installing a home router at a substation so they don't have to get out of their truck, things like that. Uh, these are human errors, and hackers can always count on these things to break into systems. In fact, I would argue that that's probably the thing they rely on the most. So, you know, everybody should keep training their people. They should try to do cyber hygiene. They should install better processes. They should keep up with the compliance. They should keep buying that whiz-bang technology. But they should also need to recognize that uh, they can always count on people using, uh, that the people in their system is re are really the weakest link. And uh, for that reason, I keep coming back, like, what can you do? You, can, you can't get rid of the people, obviously, uh, but you can make your system more resilient by uh, doing things like knowing your inventory, eliminating cyber functions and features you don't need, identifying and focusing on the security of your most critical functions so that you protect those things first. And if you do all that, you really reduce risks to the people problem so that when people do dumb things, it may not hurt so bad. So in recent years, there have been a lot of different cyber attacks that have come to light, whether that's because, I mean, there's just more of a focus on what is happening in the cyber world now, or if there are actually more uh, attacks just happening in general, which I do believe there definitely are. Uh, mm -hmm. What have we learned from those attacks? So I, I'm, I'm trying to learn along with attacks as they evolve, I think, because I don't want people to always constantly fight the last war. And uh, as it's obvious in my responses and my interest is in threats against critical infrastructure, cyber physical uh, attacks in particular. And so the recent threat that has my attention uh, that I think we can learn a lot from was first reported by Microsoft Security in May of this year. And it was later posted in an alert by a number of government agencies. 
that's attributed to a Chinese intrusion set called Volt Typhoon. Uh, for most of my career, I focused on ro- Russian cyber attacks, but you know the Russians have their hands full right now. We haven't seen as much cyber activity from them, but China is really on the uptick. Uh, and this group, Volt Typhoon, is believed to be trying to disrupt communications between the U.S. and our regional bases and allies so that they could maybe leverage that attack position to uh, disrupt communications uh, during a time of, of a future crisis, like a conflict over Taiwan, if you can imagine that. So the hallmark of this kind of attack that you know we need to learn from is that they use fileless malware techniques, which we often call living off the land. And that's basically where they take advantage of features in the operating system itself without dropping any malicious payload into the memory. So they basically look like an authorized user. They don't look any different than anybody else uh, in many cases. And if done well, they don't trigger any antivirus scanning. They don't leave uh, traces that can be discovered through forensic analysis. So in other words, it's a very difficult threat uh, to detect, and it can be very effective in achieving uh, some outcome like a like a physical effect in the world. So what's this tell us? It just tells us they're getting more sophisticated. They're always gonna get more sophisticated, but also they seem to be capitalizing and evolving all the trends in our industries that only increase opportunities for threats like this. So in all those critical uh, infrastructure sectors like communications, technology, uh, uh, energy production and delivery, water distribution, transportation, maritime, shipping, you name it, Companies are increasing the automation. They're increasing the remote control for monitoring. They're using analytics that pull data from those systems and networks. These trends only increase the attack surface. So remember, just a rule of thumb, any digital features that a network connection or network connection that a company uses for for control and transparency for good purposes can also be hijacked by a capable adversary using these living off the land techniques. Um, But... I'm not all doom and gloom. I told I'm always doom and gloom. I should be a little more positive. So I'm trying to think about what's positive here. And one thing uh, that I think we've learned that's really positive, actually, not not all joking aside, is that we even know about this at all. It wasn't long ago that we would have expected that that this would be first discovered by the government, probably from some classified source and method. And if that information was ever shared, it would have been so highly redacted and delayed that it would have little use for any network defense strategy. But Volt Typhoon was first reported by a private sector threat intelligence entity way before the government released anything. I mean, Microsoft's been doing this for a while. They were also key to reporting Russian cyber activities in the early days of the war with Ukraine. So I think this shows that the private threat intelligence community is really getting very good at discovering nation state level threats. And they aren't waiting for the government to take action. And in fact, just by looking at the way this is reported, it looks like they coordinated and collaborated with the government on the timing and the manner in which this was all put out. So I think if we have if we get the emergence of a strong and capable collaborative government and private threat intelligence ecosystem, I think it really makes us stronger. And uh, I think if we can continue to detect and report on these activities, we'll deter these adversaries, which ultimately makes us safer. Uh, in the long run. So I think that's a really positive outcome of all of this. I love that you brought us back around to a positive there. Um, So this field can move pretty fast in cybersecurity. What emerging technologies do you see impacting the field in the near future? So I think everybody in this field is contractually obligated now to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a popular answer. Exactly. I mean, it's the easy one, so why not take it? I, I don't claim to be an expert here, but uh, in my role at the Department of Energy, I oversaw a lot of research and development investments at the national laboratories uh, on AI and machine learning to determine how they might be leveraged for cybersecurity. So 
the promise, there's a lot of promise here. Uh, if, if AI could conceivably recognize and react to cyber attacks uh, with the greater accuracy and speed than any human could perform, uh, if they could even predict those behaviors or catch them at early stages, if we consider that cyber attackers may also be able to use this uh, for their operations, but if they confront a well-trained and reliable AI cybersecurity platform that can block or mitigate activities as they're happening, sandbox those, event, sandbox those events and analyze them forensically to determine where they come from, and then you know, share that information broadly throughout the ecosystem so that other people can mitigate or prevent the attack. And all that can be done at machine speed. And if we're really good and we use generative AI to actually do the predictive analysis to be able to, you know, predict, identify and defend against future threats, uh, that would be a very formidable front for any cyber attack uh, you know, forced to overcome, even if it was also leveraging AI. So I think there's a lot of promise. I think there's a lot of uh, capabilities that have been developed already on this. But I also think there's a long way to go before we can achieve this vision technically. Uh, we also have to rec recognize, again, I keep coming back to this culture problem, people problem. Many operational cultures, they're just very conservative and not inclined to adopt new technologies that they don't directly control. And so I think if we're talking about OT security, it will take even longer to bring AI into that environment, even if after the technology has been proven to be effective. But again, trying to be positive, you know, I'm always surprised by how rapidly changing this world is that we live in. And, you know, I can't predict myself how fast or how, you know, how readily adopted this stuff will be. So I could be surprised these technologies may be here before we know it. So if that does occur, Gary, I, uh, you know, I'll need to be, there won't be any need for people like me and I'll have to go find another job. But, uh, you know, until that day, I'm hopeful that they can uh, make progress on that front. So kind of ending this off here with the most important question of your entire career. Uh, what is your favorite movie, TV show, I guess really whatever, uh, that has to do with cybersecurity? Well, this podcast, obviously, right? <laughs> Correct. Um, <laughs> but separately from that, uh, I actually did have to crowdsource this one because uh, there's a lot of options, as you, as you, uh, as you mentioned. Um, but my circle of friends and colleagues who are also paranoid about critical infrastructure attack scenarios, uh, the clear favorite when I asked people about this was uh, live free or die hard. You know, uh, I think we're I hope we're past the need for spoiler alerts for a movie that came out in 2007. But, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the plot, it involves a maniacal kind of James Bond like character who attacks the critical infrastructure of the U.S. for you know, revenge and some money, uh, monetary goals. Uh, you really got to suspend your disbelief on how some of the cyber attacks are actually achieved. I think I recall there's like a scene where a kid with a Nokia phone hijacks a SATCOM network within about 10 seconds off of, uh, you know, I don't even know how he got access, but those, those kind of things are phantasmagoric is the only kind of word that comes to mind, but you do have to spend your disbelief. But why the movie's cool, I think, from a cyber perspective is that it really does highlight the concept of social panic and, you know, what might actually happen if we had widespread outages that lasted any amount of time for critical services on which people just have come to rely on uh, for everyday life. So I think those threats actually are realistic. 
today. I think, you know, I've given talks and I speak about this all the time. There's all kinds of literature on Chinese and Russian threat capabilities that could make those things realistic. So I think that the movie really does highlight the impact of, of that kind of a threat if it did happen. And, you know, you get Bruce Willis, you know, he, he crashes a, he crashes a helicopter with a car. I mean, that's cool. So, you know, if you just want to see stuff like that, it's worth it. It's worth checking out. Yeah, that one's my go-to as well, like when this conversation comes up, because, yeah, I mean, it's a very good one. I also, after watching, I spent so much time trying to, like, find actual cases where, um, like, hackers took over, like, the traffic system, you know, and all the lights, because that would have been so cool to write about, but it's actually not that common at all. So, um, but, you know, who doesn't like a good Bruce Willis movie, too? So, yeah, well, there are some realistic things there, like, you know. They do set. They do note that you'd have to have physical access to a lot of the control systems to have an effect and things like that, and that is true. Uh, but I do believe that the that the systems, as we've talked about earlier, are evolving rapidly to become more digitally connected. And so, you know, as we become more reliable with those technologies, we also become more um, open to attack. So, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, but that's why we're all here to try to make sure it doesn't. Right. I would also like to point out for Tyler's benefit that, that in the Italian job, they did that same thing where they hijacked the traffic lights. And so it's a it's a good movie trope that gets used. <laughs> All right, uh, Victor, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, uh, it was my pleasure. It's a lot of fun thinking about these questions, and I'm really glad you guys had me back. Yeah, it's always a great time talking to you. And make sure, not just to you, but everybody else, that you're tuning in all month uh, for as we release more episodes for the Cybersecurity Month series. Uh, don't forget to use the hashtag, hashtag BeCybersmart on all your social media for this month, just so that when people click on the hashtag, they see all of the great goodness there on uh, whatever your uh, preferred social media is. And we've got all kinds of Awareness Month content on the site at icspulse.com but i mean awareness month shouldn't just be one month it should be year round so you should check the site year round um but at any rate thanks for listening and until next time stay safe out there